Christians talk a lot about backsliding, that is, the doubts or struggles with our faith. Often the stories we share reflect characters who do the same. But how can Christian-made stories best explore this challenge, moving past cliches and shallow pictures of backsliders and showing more realistic images of people who fall back from their faith but then find restoration in Jesus? Welcome again to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, where we find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and apply their meanings to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I publish lorehaven.com. I'm also the co-author of the nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I am a huge fan of the Mary Magdalene character in The Chosen, and we'll get to her in a minute. Because this is episode 69, How Can Faithful Stories Best Show Backslidden Heroes? I also just watched the last episode of The Chosen. Uh, Mary seems to be on her way to recovery, but I found that at least after season one, spoiler alert, of course, about this biblical drama series, uh, Jesus heals Mary Magdalene at the end of this amazing season debut for The Chosen. And I found that I had been, for some reason, expecting that that would just fix her. And then it was a mild uh, surprise to me then to find in uh, the midpoint of season two ongoing as we record uh, that Mary was struggling. She had encountered someone who was demonically oppressed and was simply cast back. Uh, She didn't have demons come back into her. That was a permanent change. The Savior had come in, and once he tells the demons to leave, they flee, but she still faced the consequences, the trauma from all of the choices that she had made and the oppression that she had suffered. So she ended up backsliding, and that uh, that caused, as you saw, Zach, uh, that caused a lot of uproar among some mm-hmm. Chosen fans uh, because, I mean, it was understandable that they would expect, wait a minute, Jesus is here. He cast out the demons. The change is permanent. Mary may struggle with other things, but... She's not going to backslide as if she's been uh, oppressed all over again, will she? There was a great post that Dallas Jenkins had about this. And he responded directly to the fan backlash about a backsliding character. And he he didn't even make it about, you know, artistic choices or whatever. It, It was all about like, do you really think that Christians don't struggle and even kind of drift at times when after they are saved and like that, that is just bad theology. And it was interesting how that even made its way into the script. And this is probably another thing that made people upset. I haven't followed all the comments, but when the, the Jesus character in the show says, did you really think you would never sin again? And wow, they're taking aim directly at a, a sort of a theological view that I've heard uh, throughout my life, which is that, you know, whoever is born again, cannot sin. So we we can talk about that here in a minute, but I think, you know, that is what this whole topic is about, is that once you're saved, is is that it? Like, are you just going to live a a virtuous, perfect, easy Christian life after that? Or are you going to have doubts? Are you going to have struggles? Are you even going to harden your heart at times? Or is it going to be more smoother than that? I, I think where this topic really intersects um, our present life, Stephen, is we probably, and, and to our listener, we probably all know someone who has walked away, or it seems to have walked away from Christ. So then we have to wonder, what's going on there? 
This brings us straight to our concession stand. I understand that the uh, the hot dogs have just been unwrapped from their package. And as we <laughs> record, it's about to be the American Independence Day weekend. So actually, it's not a concession stand. It's an entire barbecue grill. And the sausages are sizzling and the hamburgers are made just that perfect texture. So let's have some early samples. Uh, we've already talked actually about a similar topic, which is the idea of Christians who are falling away and not just falling back or sliding back, but falling away from their faith. They've decided they're not Christians anymore. In episode 10 of the podcast, we asked what sorts of imagination food have they been enjoying? Like, where did they get this idea uh, that Christianity cannot answer these basic questions, not just from fiction or apologetics or from life experience, but from the kinds of stories or songs that people are feeding themselves. This topic is similar, but it's not the same as deconstruction. I would say that we're exploring mainly the issues of people who remain Christians but slide back, which leads to the second concession. We are going to tread lightly on the challenge of whether true Christians can fall away from their faith. I personally think that once you have tasted of the heavenly gift, as the I think it's the author of Hebrews warns, it is possible to fall away, but I believe that means you were never truly saved. I think Christians of good faith can disagree about this, but let's stay within the focus of Christians who remain in Christ but are sliding back, who are forgetting about him for a time or because of their trauma or some of their suffering, just decide they don't want to have anything to do with that sort of thing. Some of this overlaps with tropey fiction evangelism, uh, the notions that Christians have in their fiction of these sort of stock unsaved characters who just need to be told that God really loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. Uh, the mega churchy uh, kind of seeker friendly motif has gotten into some Christian fiction, maybe older Christian fiction that deals with any of that overt faith content. All that stuff is worth its own episode. This is not that, but some of this may overlap with a future episode we do about that. Fourth on our concession stand, uh, we will critique some shallow backsliding narratives from Christian books, uh, one in particular that I have right beside me, at least it's a professing Christian book. Uh, some Christians also of good faith can disagree about how Christian it is. Uh, we hope to preserve that sense of good faith, even as we critique folks, partly in a fictional example that I'll offer, but also one book by name. But we're going to name names for the positive examples that we demonstrate. Our point here is to point to the better examples that Christian-made books in the fantastical genres have provided of backsliding characters. Stephen, you know, kind of related to this concession stand, there's this viral moment from The Ellen Show that was all over social media a few years ago. It's where this woman called in and said, well, I love Jesus, but I drink a little. And everyone kind of laughed at that. And then everyone started talking about it. Like, well, you know, why do we laugh at that? Do we laugh because we can relate? We love Jesus, but we have these secret sins or we have these, uh, you know, bad habits or, or whatever it is. Or are we laughing because, oh, yeah, you can you can drink a little and swear a little and, and, and do other little sins. And, that, and that's OK. You still love Jesus and he, and he covers your sin and no big deal. So th there was so much discussion about that. And that's what always is in the back of our mind when we talk about backsliding stories. It's like, well, this better end a certain way or it is saying something wrong about the gospel, or it's saying something wrong about Jesus. Because, you know, the two ditches here are legalism or license. Are we going to portray characters in such a way that legalism is the only answer? That's the only way to get back on track, is just to kind of beat yourself up and, and get with the program. Or 
Are we going to fall into the license ditch and say, well, it doesn't really matter what you do. You've got the fire insurance of salvation. So whatever happens doesn't really matter. And those are the dangers that we're always looking out for when we talk about backsliding. We'll talk about the positive examples here in a minute, but I I think I realize what the tension is with this. Neither one of those ditches is biblical. I would point to the Apostle John, who writes in his first epistle, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And I love the wording there. That's a paraphrase, by the way. He says, no one born of God. So that's a confirmation. You are born of God. If you are born of God, you will not, quote, make a practice of sinning, end quote. He doesn't say no one born of God ever sins. He says no one born of God makes, that which implies intention, a practice of sinning. You're not going to go on sinning. If you backslide and you are born of God, you will come back. That's how I read that. And thus, I think the best Christian-made stories will illustrate that. If a Christian character is struggling with something, be it a secret sin, even an incidence of or an ongoing pattern of abuse, I think a healthy Christian story will show some repentance from that. Like, we need to see this character grow. I don't want to see a story that excuses a, a, a carnal Christian who says they love Jesus but then disobeys him. That's not the option for the Christian. You cannot make a pattern of disobeying Christ if you claim to love him. If you love him, Jesus said, you will keep his commandments. That's how the whole gospel works. And that's how I think good Christian-made stories will work when they explore uh, either you know a character who's called a Christian in a more contemporary set book, like a spiritual warfare thriller or something like that, or a fantasy world equivalent uh, with people who are part of a kingdom or part of a faction or something uh, that uh, illustrates or reflects uh, the biblical faith in some way. Yeah. And by the way, to our listener, please don't send us email about drinking. Uh, I really don't want to get into that uh, debate yeah. exactly. But the uh, I think you you said the right word, Stephen. I love Jesus, but I disobey. Going back to that, that woman's uh, uh, voicemail or whatever it was, that I think was the real key thing is like, well, I love Jesus, but I, I kind of slip up sometimes. And it's like, I love Jesus, but I get angry at people or I love Jesus, but I get lazy sometimes. And w- what I love about that moment was just the honesty of saying, I-, I love Jesus, but I don't measure up to where I should be as a Christian. And I think that is the direction we're going today. How do you keep pressing forward when you you don't measure up. In a moment, we will explore how you can backslide badly if you find yourself in a Christian-made fiction book. First, however, we've just received a bulletin about the Earth's forthcoming doom. I'm sorry to say, uh, but it is described in a novel called Seed Judgment from novelist Joshua David. Seed Judgment is a science fantasy tale of biblical proportions from Joshua David, available now exclusively on Amazon. Here is the description. Seed falls from the heavens and judges humanity. One foretells of the coming calamity, but the words are heeded too late. Few remain after the war against the cosmic demon. Long confined to one of the few outposts left on Earth, Sal accepts an unauthorized mission to find a survivor lost in the Vegas wastes. He believes his target is special, imbued with a spirit that might finally turn the tide against the darkness, but to save her from the risen still haunting humanity, He'll have to fight alone and outgunned against enemies that have already conquered the world. That's the end of the description. We actually have a Lorehaven-sponsored review of Seed Judgment, in which we say in part, quote, 
Joshua David's seed judgment marries the thing, Resident Evil, and Mad Max to generate a post-apocalyptic tale of frenetic intensity. There's a beauty to the brutality, a dance in the destruction. End quote. You can see the show notes for that sponsored review, as well as the Amazon.com link to Joshua David's novel, Seed Judgment. Now let's explore the possibility, however remote, that you wake up and you find yourself in a Christian-made novel, and you think to yourself, gee, I wonder if there's a God after all. I've suffered too much. The world is being invaded by aliens or spirits or whatever. I think I'll go backsliding. That may not happen, of course, to you. It's highly unlikely. But let's consider this fictional example of what I would think to be bad backsliding. That is backsliding that's not handled well, which unfortunately is a trope in some Christian-made novels, at least in the past. I don't want to pick on them. Like I said in the concession stand, uh, there's only one book I'm going to name here. But first, this fictional example I actually wrote this in an older article based on a real novel that I'd read. And here's what I wrote. Quote, Karis wanted to cry. Did Michael really mean it? Was he really saying there was a good God who loved everyone in the world, everyone including her? But he could not mean that, she thought. After all, she was not important, beautiful, wealthy, or special. No one could love her after all the bad things she had done. Not even God. End quote. Cheese, Gromit! It's all made of cheese! I couldn't help but read that with a rather mocking tone. Um, I wrote it, so I can mock it. There's just so many tropes in here, and I think despite maybe a little extra cheese, some of this has been typical of some Christian-made stories in the past about backsliders, particularly in how the novelist, speaking through the Christian characters, tries to address the concerns of the backslider. The backslider always seems, by the way, to be healthily engaged with these ideas and easily available to get into conversations about these things. I think the backsliders <laughs> you meet in real life are just too distracted to care. They're not engaged with these ideas. They don't want to talk about apologetics or how a loving God could allow suffering or any of the other reasons they may feel like they want to backslide. They don't want to talk about how you should not indulge in excessive drinking or whatever vice it is that they have found more pleasurable than Christ for some reason. They're just distracted. They're not thinking about that stuff. And I think some of the most uh, realistic stories ought to reflect that. People are just distracted. The response here of blind faith, like you just need to just need to have blind faith. You just need to realize that God loves you. Like some of that stuff are, just really strike me as safe tropes. If you watch an animated movie that says, just believe in yourself or you have all you need or the gifts are inside you, this seems to be the evangelical version of that. There's some half-truth in there at most, but at worst, it is a lie. People, even if they are paying attention to these beliefs, are not going to be helped by pleas of just have faith or but God really loves you. We'll explore that a little bit more in this real example as well. Uh, suffice it to say here, though, this is a pre-cleaned saccharine version of the sufferings that Christians do have. Not all backsliders have simple stories like this, and so they're not going to be paying any attention to these simple answers like God loves you or just have faith. From there, let's move on to a real example, and I will name names here. And by the way, quick grab from the concession stand, do we call The Shack a Christian book? I went into this at length in an older series published at the Speculative Faith blog. The answer is that it's confusing. 
by my definition, the shack is at most one third of a Christian book, because even though there's one guy's name on the cover, William Paul Young, the book actually has apparently had three authors, three authors, one confusion. One of the authors seems to have a credible profession of the biblical gospel faith. One of them, the guy whose name is on the cover, says he's universalist. And at least by doctrinal standards, that makes him not a Christian. Christians are not universalists. We do believe that God has the right and justly punishes people in hell. So can we call this a Christian book? I don't know. It is confusing. But what I can say for certain is that Mac, the main character from The Shack, which is basically just a kind of a, a sermon in fictional book form, is an example of a rather shallow backslider. Uh, the story tries to present this great tragedy that he's had uh, with some semblance of honesty. Oh no, uh, his daughter is abducted in the woods and then taken and horrible things are done to her, but it keeps nerfing the tragedy. And if you're familiar with that term, uh, it just means it's just depowering the horror of what has gone on. There's constantly these, uh, these little things that are said by the stand-in for God, which is basically these three human figures in this shack in the magical woods that are removing the consequences of the tragedy. It, it doesn't seem satisfying to me. Again, it's three authors and one confusion. They're offering a lot of tropes. The fictional trinity is tropey. The shtick, by the way, only works uh, when the authors are assuming these bad ideas about the church back home. Uh, there's this notion that traditional Christianity can't help you. It doesn't have the answers. It doesn't have the emotional resources that you need when you feel like backsliding, when these terrible things have happened to you and you doubt God. Reading the Bible won't help. Listening to your pastor won't help. Going to this vision-type place and listening to God or these imaginary versions of God will help. I did not find it helpful. I don't think that these are realistic portrayals of backsliding that actually reflect the concerns that Christians have in their lives when they feel like they might fall away from their faith. Max backsliding, his trauma, uh, the suffering that he's undergone, is resolved far too quickly. Of course, this is a small book. You do expect some resolution at the end of a book. But if you're going to purport to treat these issues more in depth than other Christian books, you need to leave some things unanswered. Some questions just cannot be easily answered, but the shack tries to easily answer them and easily answers them right here on page 172, the start of chapter 12. Quote, as Mac made his way down the trail toward the lake, he suddenly realized that something was missing. His constant companion, the great sadness, was gone. It was as if it had been washed away in the mists of the waterfall as he emerged from behind its curtain. A little bit later, the great sadness would not be part of his identity any longer. End quote. I don't believe that. Great sadness, trauma, whether or not you give it the italic label like an album title like he does, always stays with you. Just like we mentioned at the top of this episode, Mary Magdalene's trauma, her temptations to return to her old life, uh, the bad choices she made, even if in response to oppression, she's still responsible for them. And she will carry those. She will fight against those until she dies and goes to heaven and then is resurrected. And I love, spoiler alert, in The Chosen. Jesus alludes to this when he tells her she will struggle, you know, she will be freed from that struggle, but that freedom can't happen just yet. You know, you made a point earlier, Stephen, that too often with these kind of shallow backsliding stories, you've got a character that's almost too self-aware of the spiritual struggle they're going through. And I, I think you're right in that 
when a real person is backsliding, they are not necessarily thinking about issues that deeply. It's more of a, they're distracted. There's something in the present. I mean, Jesus, Jesus talks about with the parable of the four soils, how there's the seed sown among the thorny uh, soil and that the thorns come up and choke the seed. And the thorns represent the pleasures and the worries of this life. And usually that is what's going on. Uh, someone is getting too caught up in worldly pleasures or worldly concerns. A, a more positive example could be the movie portrayal of Prince Caspian. When uh, High King Peter says, we've waited for Aslan long enough. It's up to us now. It's one of my favorite lines in all the Narnia movies. As I've mentioned before, he is thinking about a very present problem that he's facing in his life. And it's sort of like his faith in Aslan is secondary rather than primary. You know, this, uh, this whole idea in the shack, I haven't read the shack, but yeah, I, I can see how that comes off very shallow. And for anyone that's, you know, wrestled with mental health issues in their life, I could see how that would definitely come across the wrong way. Now I, I do think though, and I've experienced this and I know others who've experienced this, God can miraculously rescue people from you know, a mental health crisis. But the wrong belief is that you will never again face that temptation or, or that struggle. That's just not good theology. Like we live in a fallen world. We still have imperfect bodies. And so why would we think that, you know, those struggles will never show up again in our lives? Well, another problem with the Mac example from the shack is that it is entirely an issue of response to suffering. Whatever has been done to Mac here is by other people. Mac himself is less often shown to respond in terrible, sinful ways. And this also is part of the journey of the backslider, though. Even if you stay in the faith, which, of course, I believe that everyone who is saved will continue to be saved. If you fall away and stay that way till your death, you are never truly saved. That's, that's my belief. And Christians of goodwill can disagree. But if you are receiving oppression, if you are the victim of suffering, all of that, you're still responsible for the sinful responses that you have to that oppression or suffering. Uh, right. Christians debate, oh, is it, is it your environment or is it your heart that makes you sin? Like, I think scripture answers, yes, this is not the dichotomy that we think it is. We live in a groaning world that is the result of other people's sin going all the way back to Adam and Eve, but we are also 100% responsible for our actions, for our thoughts, uh, just for our very nature, being born into the sinful human nature. Deadness in sin is how the Apostle Paul describes it. Any realistic backsliding character is going to reflect both realities. Yes, we are the victims of oppression. We're the victims of suffering. We live in a world that is groaning because of the sinful choices of other people. But we are also responsible for our own sin. And if God is going to intervene, whether it's in a shack or some other way, best through the uh, words of scripture, by the way, then the advice that God gives, the command that God gives had better reflect the Bible. It had better reflect the call to be responsible, to repent, not just to put away your great sadness and uh, experience a tree growing in the garden of your heart, actual shack line, by the way, which is a peak sentimentality there. Sentimentality is not the answer to the backslider struggles scripture is. Well, you think about the ways that Jesus himself addressed very hard situations and suffering in the Gospels, and it's just staggering. It's so surprising how he responded to people and, and surprised people. Um, 
The example I've been thinking of all year is when uh, they ask him about the human sacrifices that Pilate made in their pagan worship. And then there was this tower that fell on people, just this tragic thing. And, and as we record this, there is a terrible, I just remembered this, there's a, there was a building collapse. Literally a tower fell in right. the United States. Yes. Right. And, and just, it's horrible to read about that. And there are not um, saccharine, like you said, sentimental answers to that. Like we may not even get answers in this life. You know, the way that Jesus spoke about it was, unless you repent, you too will perish. Talk about blunt, right? Like, uh, that's not something you put on a Hallmark card. That's a bold move, son of David. Bold move. But Jesus was always doing this, saying that there there are worse dangers in this life than disease or death or suffering. Uh, or poverty or or anything or oppression you know there there's a much greater enemy that we all have and unless you repent you will perish and so that is where Jesus always took us is to say think about eternity believe and accept the gospel i don't know that there is really a better answer than that because what do we expect i always think about what the disciples expected Jesus to do. Did they expect him to go resurrect those 18 people that died in the tower collapse? Uh, you know, did they expect him to throw lightning bolts at Pilate for, for killing their, their fellow, uh, their fellow Jews? You know, he didn't do either one of those things, and he, but he could have. And, and that's the really troubling thing is that we know what God is capable of, but he doesn't do what we expect him or want him to do. And he always turns things around to us and, and has us, you know, he, he talks to us directly and wants us to deal with him rather than like using him to deal with some other situation. Like he's after our hearts. He's not after, he's not interested in how we want to use him. Next, we'll describe how to become a better, more biblical backsliding hero in a Christian book. First, however, we have another bit of breaking news. Bad spiritual forces, it turns out, want you to backslide. Uh, This is reflected in our second sponsor of this episode, which is Urban Angel, a story from A.J. Chamberlain. Quote, Urban Angel is a story of courage, redemption, and spiritual warfare set in contemporary London. One day the church will be made perfect, but for now she bears the scars of war. Alex Masters knows all about that war. For her, the journey to faith has been marked by grief and loneliness, but still she chooses to believe. Daisy is a child of the social media generation, lost in every belief and none. When tragedy strikes, she seeks out her cousin Alex because she knows that Alex understands what it is to face the darkness. They come together, believer and unbeliever, hunted by an enemy that will do whatever it takes to achieve its goal. Alone, Alex and Daisy would be defenseless, but this is not a struggle against flesh and blood, and not every weapon is visible. Urban Angel launched in ebook and paperback format on July 1st and is available from all the major ebook platforms and your local bookshop. It is the first book in the Masters series. See the show notes for that Amazon link. Here's a review as well. Quote, Urban Angel is distinctly different from standard Christian fiction. It doesn't shy away from the tough issues faced by Christians. It's gutsy, frank, and relevant. End quote. You'll find all those notes in the show notes for this episode. That sounds like a great uh, addendum to what we're talking about. So let's go into our second section here about books that deal with backsliding in a great way. 
and we are going to talk about Left Behind. And yeah, if you've listened to our podcast, you know that the way Steve and I even became friends is he had written something that really resonated with me, which was uh, Left Behind is still pretty awesome. And even though we've we've read it 20 years ago, we, we have some different opinions about it now, but hey, there are some great moments in that series. And the moment we're going to talk about is in the book Assassins and how Rayford Steele becomes one of the assassins, or at least attempted assassins, to take out the Antichrist. And oh boy, Stephen, this this whole character arc was so fascinating to me. You know, here you've got Rayford Steele, the the pilot in the very first book, uh, like the literal pilot that is up in the air flying a plane when everyone disappears in the rapture. And by the end of the book, he becomes a Christian. Uh, he was uh, just a churchgoer. He wasn't. He wasn't a believer. His wife, however, disappeared. His son disappeared, and that led him to the gospel. That led him to be part of the uh, tribulation force. But here he is, totally backsliding now and becoming like a sort of like a mercenary. Is is this book five or book six? I can't remember. It is book six. It came out in the late nineties, actually, and I actually have it right in front of me, even as I stand here speaking unto you, because right there on page five. Uh, the authors, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, start moving toward uh, this character journey that actually goes all the way back, well, really to book one, as you described. But I'd say that it really starts in book four. Uh, Rayford remarries after his first wife disappears in the rapture, and she unfortunately goes down in a plane after the great earthquake that, uh, that levels across the entire globe. Rayford then spends a lot of book five making some very bad decisions. Uh, he starts becoming more hostile towards uh, the very non-believers that they're supposed to be trying to save during the first half of this literal seven-year tribulation event. And then what happens when you are a Christian or a tribulation saint, as these authors call them, uh, in the middle of this uh, climactic end times period, who is aware of the prophecies? You know that at least according to this singular interpretation of uh, Revelation and Daniel and other passages of Scripture, uh, you know that, or at least you believe, that the Antichrist, this, this false Messiah, the Antichrist, capital A, after a bunch of other Antichrists have come, uh, you believe that there's this big one who comes at the end, you know that he's supposed to receive some kind of mortal head wound and then possibly counterfeit the resurrection, uh, which is the extended interpretation the authors offer. This is actually the direct quote as Rayford begins to wonder if he might play a part in that, uh, which might help him work out some of these wrathful feelings he's had. From page five, quote, Rayford knew Carpathia was merely a pawn of Satan, really part of God's plan for the ages. But the man had wreaked such havoc, caused such destruction, fostered such mourning that Rayford couldn't help but hate him. Rayford didn't want to grow numb to the disaster, death, and devastation that had become commonplace. He wanted to still feel alive, violated, offended. Things were bad and getting worse, and the chaos multiplied every month. A little bit later, Rayford longed to survive all seven years to witness the glorious appearing of Christ to set up his thousand-year reign on earth. A little bit later, he had other reasons to live. He loved his daughter and her husband and their baby, and yet he felt responsible that Chloe had missed the rapture. The only family he had left would face the same world he did. What kind of a future was that? He didn't want to think about it. All he wanted to think about was what weapons he might have access to and how he could avail himself of them at the right time. End quote. Uh, Fans know that Rayford ends up playing a part in the assassination of the Antichrist. 
Uh, but ultimately he has to undergo a journey of restoration, which involves plenty of repentance and help from shepherds actually in the underground church in Greece. That forms a lot of book seven, which at the time I thought was really slow and I wanted it to pick up. We, we had ourselves a fake resurrection to get to after all. Uh, but the authors, uh, mostly Jerry B. Jenkins there, who actually wrote the fiction, uh, to their credit, they spent a lot of time getting Rayford restored. Uh, people criticize the Left Behind series for being saccharine and sentimental for some reason, like some of the worst examples I mentioned earlier. Uh, and there may be elements of it to criticize, of course, but this is not one of them. I actually think that the Rayford journey of backsliding, uh, where he holds on to his faith but still holds on to his vengeance, uh, is one of the best elements of the series, if not the best. And it's kind of a dangerous idea, too, to be guilty of wanting to try to fulfill prophecy. If it's the Antichrist, he's going down, right? He is literally going to be Satan. You don't get criticized. You're not sinning if you hate Satan, right? And yet Rayford is, and he has to be restored just as if he hated anyone else. Yeah, this is the moment from the whole series that has stuck with me after 20 years that uh, this whole process that Rayford goes through was so chilling. It got under my skin and I just, I couldn't put it down. I couldn't stop thinking about it. It really resonated with me and, and don't worry, that's not because I'm going to become a ninja assassin or something, but that whole process that Rayford goes through of deciding to kill the antichrist, it started in very small ways. It started in, like you said, kind of nursing this anger nursing this sadness and this grief and just trying to let it grow and just letting it sort of take over his mind. And then it moved into kind of bigger decisions he made and this sort of self-justification process. I love how James 1 puts this where it says, uh, James 1, 13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So th this is such a great portrayal of how that process worked through Rayford. And man, I, I have, again, it resonated with me because I have done the same things in my life, Stephen, where... I have nursed a wound or I, I have nursed a grudge or I have just nursed some other desire and I, it just plays on repeat in my mind and then it leads to some really dumb decisions that I make. And the way that they show Rayford's thought process was so, it was crystal clear. That is exactly how it works. And he plays a role, but then he is restored, as you said, in the next book. And I also love that that he wasn't a lost cause. You know, they don't just write him off like, oh, what a loser, what an idiot, he's gone, he's dead to me. You know, they show him repent and recover from that, and that was so hopeful. It's like, hey, no one is ever too far gone, right? Whether they are Christian or not a Christian yet, God's grace can restore anyone. Otherwise, why are we doing this? Like, why are we following Jesus if we don't think that his grace can cover anything? But the, just a fantastic portrayal. And you know what else, Stephen, is, is as you said, Rayford is trying to fulfill prophecy himself. And I remember around the time these books came out, a lot of people criticized the evangelical church or, or the dispensationalist part of the church or, or the, the Israel supporting part of the church as saying, hey, you guys are just trying to 
make prophecy happen. Like, and all you guys uh, who voted for George W. Bush or support the Iraq war or whatever, you're just trying to bring about the end of the world. And it was very interesting how Rayford was basically that character. Uh, Rayford was like almost like the author's hearing that criticism and saying, well, let's show what this actually looks like. This is what it looks like. But you know what? We're going to show him recover from that. We're going to show him repent and we're going to show him be redeemed and, and follow God in a totally new and fresh way. Oh, it's an undeniable sin in how it's portrayed in the story. And it is, I think, a gentle rebuke to readers who might feel like Rayford about the Antichrist's little a that they identify in their own lives. One of my favorite moments leading up to this journey for Rayford is in book five, uh, the uh, the fifth judgment uh, strikes. I think it's actually the fifth trumpet judgment. Uh, the book is actually named for that Apollyon, which is the ruler of the demonic locusts from the bottomless pit. Uh, oh, these so literal cool. demonic creatures <laughs> flying out of there and biting or stinging uh, everyone who does not have the seal of Christ, who's not a tribulation saint. And they actually find someone who's been pretending to be a tribulation saint. He was able to counterfeit the mark. Uh, the demonic locusts don't care. They go straight for him and the jig is up. Rayford is basically gloating at that point, And the mm-hmm. narrative doesn't give you the idea that he's wrong. Uh, it almost plays it straight as if it's perfectly justified for these people uh, to be stung and then suffering for five months and then temporarily immortal, not even able to commit suicide to relieve the pain. Raver doesn't care. He's sick and tired of being taken advantage of. Uh, there's some other drama going on there, and he's just very glad to see this horde of locusts come after and sting these people who were trying to take advantage of him and who were counterfeiting the mark of Christ. And then in the next scene, another believer is taking Rayford to task for behaving like just this sort of culture warrior. You're mm. supposed to be trying to get these people saved, especially before they take the mark of the beast when that comes along and are lost beyond recovery. Uh, that's a big message in the Left Behind series is evangelism, uh, not just for spiritual points, but out of love for these people. You're supposed to be working toward that great soul harvest in the end times. Rayford loses sight of that. He actually repents of that then, but this is still part of his larger journey of moving toward vengeance. Instead of feeling vengeful against these other people he's trying to save, uh, he turns his thoughts of vengeance against the Antichrist himself. And I personally have benefited from that uh, whenever I've been tempted towards these these thoughts of vengeance against the Antichrist movements that we see around us. Whether or not you believe in a larger, uh, final capital A Antichrist, uh, we can learn from this example. The other thing I really liked about this whole segment with Rayford is that the way he backslides is not the way that he was being tempted to sin before he was a Christian. So in book one, he's basically having this emotional affair with Hattie. And then uh, once he becomes a Christian, he leaves that behind. He's not really tempted to go down that route with her anymore. But instead, he's attempted to become a murderer. I remember being so surprised by that. I thought, oh, well, surely now that his his wife is dead, you know, and he's already lost his first wife to the rapture, like surely he's going to go after Hattie now because that's, that's what he knows. Like that's the familiar sin. But that, that, that didn't even play into the picture at all. and. I thought that was such another good message, Stephen, is that the ways in which we are tempted change. And so that was another good lesson. But let's talk about our next example here for this section, which is The Chosen, which is what we first started talking about. Around the 20-minute mark of episode six in season two, 
Matthew and Peter, Simon Peter, have gone after Mary Magdalene, who had been who had wandered away because of this uh, traumatic experience she had in episode five, and they're sort of arguing with each other about what are they going to do uh, about Mary. And Simon kind of like just kind of has a hands off approach, like, look, she can take care of herself. I, I don't think we need to worry about this. And Matthew turns to Simon and says, what if you were cut off from Jesus by something in your past? And just what a great line. That That is what we all feel sometimes. We feel like there's something in our past that is irreconcilable with the Christian life. And then Mary sort of echoes this and says, he already fixed me once. I can't face him. And then Matthew leans down and says, you know what? I'm a bad person, Mary. My whole life was all about me, no faith. And Mary says, I do have faith in him, just not in me. And and that was sort of that first step that she took of like, okay, maybe I'll give him a second chance. I don't know if he'll give me a second chance. And then they go on and they, they bring her back. And then she has this wonderful conversation with with Jesus, uh, and I can't say enough about this uh, this episode. But that whole process of of not thinking that you can go back to Jesus—I mean, doesn't that resonate? I think everyone, if they're honest, has been there at, at least once in their life. Of like, I don't think Jesus is going to take me back after I screwed up like I did, and fill in the blank with whatever your favorite secret sin is. But man, Jesus. What does he do? He he takes her back and he restores her, and it's his grace does not run out. There is nothing that can separate us from his love. That brings us to our third major point: is applying these lessons. How can we grow in Christ thanks to these backsliding characters? Zach, as you were summarizing the uh, the fictional version of Mary Magdalene there, and this biblical fiction drama, because this is not a narrative from Scripture, which doesn't emphasize. Uh, Mary Magdalene's faith journey a whole lot. So there is, I think, room for speculation as long as we know that this is biblical fiction. That's why I'm, I'm glad, Zach, that you're talking about this version of Mary or this version of Jesus. I think those are some important qualifiers there. And as you were describing that, I was thinking about her journey. Uh, she's still portrayed as being in her faith. She is not dropped her faith in Jesus here. She still believes he's the Messiah, but she is having a legitimate struggle with her faith. She's not stopped being a Christian. She's not carnal. She is choosing to sin. Uh, She is responding sinfully to this trauma and reverting to the bad practices from which Christ has already saved her. So she is responsible for that, but she has not stopped being in Christ. And going back to Rayford Steele, the same is true of him. I can't recall any moment in uh, this uh, this book, Assassins, or any of the Left Behind series, where his salvation is seriously in doubt. He might doubt it himself, but he is literally believing that these prophecies are true. He has not stopped believing in Jesus. He's not stopped believing that Jesus will return uh, after a particular time of tribulation. He just wants to work out this vengeance. So... He hasn't lost his faith either. Uh, He's still in the gospel. And by the way, I would say that uh, for uh, the journey of a man, this is airline captain Rayford Steele uh, in the uh, designedly pulp feeling Left Behind series. That is the point of the series. It's supposed to be accessible. He has a name like Rayford Steele. You know, he is action hero. He gets a special gun to try to kill the Antichrist. 
And yet he has a very tender, very emotional, very masculine, nonetheless, journey toward repentance, being helped, by the way, by other men and uh, some other women as well. So at least insofar as we're talking about this segment of the Christian subculture, I don't want to hear about toxic masculinity that refuses to repent or be tender or share your feelings. Uh, This is a fantastic example of including all of those aspects of godly manhood. And the same is true of of Mary's journey in The Chosen. Uh, Her journey reflects godly womanhood. Uh, She is becoming who she is supposed to be, but she's not an icon. Uh, She's not this, uh, you know, perfect uh, Christian woman from a Christian movie. And maybe that's why I was surprised by her journey. You know, maybe there was a bit of a, uh, a subversion of this mythology of the virtuous Christian woman who never struggles. I mean, she overtly struggles. And I felt almost a little bit of a rebuke. Uh, for this this subconscious notion that I may have accepted that at least in Christian movies, uh, it's the women who make faster spiritual progress than the men. Well, later in that scene, when Mary Magdalene meets the uh, Jesus character in The Chosen, and, and she's restored, she has this very great quote. She says, I didn't even come back on my own. I, I just love that. I, I love the self-awareness of that, that Jesus not only saves us from our sin and makes us alive in Christ, though we are dead, but he also brings us back when we fall away and when we backslide. And that is so humbling (laughs) to realize that. She's ashamed of that. Like, well, I I should have brought myself back. You know, there's that that pride that kind of sneaks in. But that's how it always works. We we don't come back on our own. I mean, yes, we we do have to make choices. Like we're not just passive instruments. Like we we have a will. We have to decide what to do. But it's his grace that always brings us back. And if a story is cheapening the role of grace or or it's sort of diluting it, then that's not a good story because grace is just so shocking. It should blow us away that God's grace is unending. And that is always the answer. Whatever the struggle is, whatever the sin is, whatever the suffering is, God's grace is strong enough and it brings us back and it restores us. It, it's, it is that simple, but it is that profound at the same time. Well, fiction has a unique opportunity. Christian-made fiction, that is, has a unique opportunity to show the human side of this spiritual reality uh, we can sometimes, I think, over-spiritualize the journey toward repentance and restoration as if this is happening with one person in a room, maybe a Bible or some spiritual prop, uh, experiencing some grand spiritual scenario. Not true. In the fictional examples that we have explored, Rayford is intercepted by these godly men from the underground church who help to restore him. And in the uh, the fictional biblical world of the chosen, It is literally the apostles on this kind of trial run for what they're supposed to be doing as the future leaders of the church enacting the command uh, that the apostle Paul later codifies in a verse like Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I love that passage. It's the Bible's whole approach to church discipline and shepherding and restoration. Uh, They don't come along with tropes. You don't hang back like Peter thinking she's fine. She will look after herself. She's strong. Uh, This is part of what the church is supposed to do. And scripture is constantly singing 
examples of these struggling saints. We, we get that as we read the Bible. We get that from church history and all the nonfiction. The purpose of fiction, I think, is to play that out in this simulated reality. It's like the backup vocal. And therefore, we can bring that truth down to our hearts and not just our heads. If the backsliding done in the story is realistic, then we can follow along with that journey. We can almost feel like we've been there before uh, when stuff hits for the very first time. Maybe we, like Mary Magdalene, are triggered by seeing someone who's struggling with a sin or an oppression that we used to struggle with. And maybe we feel feelings of vengeance in a culture war or holy war, we think, context, like Rayford Steele did. But if we've already followed these character journeys, then this should be, at least in theory, familiar territory. Uh, even I think some of the shallow stories can help head off the tropes. You know, having read some Christian fiction about let go and let God, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, like those are not untrue, but it also means that if I become aware of those thoughts on my own, like, well, how could there be a loving God if, then I already know that's a trope. I'm a little bit self-aware, like at least in the middle of my suffering, that thought cannot seriously take hold unless I'm really, 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 really suffering and am prone to accept even these irrational thoughts that I already know deep down because I've studied them in the happier times don't make a lot of sense and ultimately will not answer the suffering. I think the common element to both Left Behind and The Chosen is that they both involved other Christians restoring the backslidden Christian. And that is exactly the verse you just read, that, that we are supposed to kind of go after each other and help restore one another. Whereas in the shack, I mean, it's basically a dream quest that he went on, you know, like how Commander Chakotay in Star Trek Voyager would go on these dream quests to get an answer about something, you know, a very uh, traditional Native American practice. And, you know, the Christian life involves other Christians. We're, we're not just Lone Ranger Christians trying to figure this out on our own, you know, and, and having these like mystical encounters. We depend on other believers to help us walk in step with the Lord and to follow his lead. And so I think that is really the core element of what a Christian story should include. It's, it's Christians helping each other and working together in their faith. Zach, by seeming incident, perfectly set up in his mention of Vision, our final sponsor for this episode, which is actually the novel by our last guest, Jody Headland. Uh, she's the author of Rebel Books' time travel historical romance novel, Come Back to Me. The back cover description says, the ultimate cure that could heal any disease? Crazy. That's exactly what research scientist Marion Crichton has always believed about her father's quest. Even if it does stem from a desire to save her sister from the genetic disease that stole their mother from them. But when her father falls into a coma after drinking a vial of holy water believed to contain traces of residue from the tree of life, Marion must question all of her assumptions. He's left behind tantalizing clues that suggest he's crossed back in time. Insane. Until Marion tests his theories and finds herself in the Middle Ages during a dangerous peasant uprising. William Durham, a valiant knight, comes to Marion's rescue and offers her protection as his wife. The longer Marion stays in the past, the more she cares about William. Can she ever find her father and make it back to the present to heal her sister? And when the time comes to leave, will she want to? Melanie Dobson, an award-winning author, says, quote, Brimming with wonder, come back to me, will keep you riveted until the last page, captivated by the possibilities. End quote. 
See our episode show notes for links to come back to me from Revel Books, as well as links to Jody Headland's website, jodyhedland.com. Well, Stephen, I enjoyed talking about this. Let's go to our comm station and hear from the fantastic fans. We got a note from Stephanie A. That's about episode 67, where we talked about preachy fiction with guest L.G. McCary. And Stephanie writes, quote, I just finished listening to your podcast episode, How Do Fantastic Stories Avoid Preachiness? I had to write immediately because it felt like listening to myself. I grew up on Frank Peretti, C.S. Lewis, Ted Decker, all the speculative greats. The Visitation is a great book. I was a big fan of The Oath and the Cooper Kids series. I very much love speculative fiction, the fantastical element. But I agree wholeheartedly, we need to tell stories without preachiness and campiness. We have the ultimate storyteller inside of us, so our story should be compelling and full of truth without beating people over the head. End quote. Stephanie, that is such a great thought. And I love your the, the confidence there that we have the best storyteller inside of us, right? That there is really no competition, if you think about it, between Christian stories and secular stories. Like Christian stories win because in the end, the Bible wins. Like Jesus wins. And that gives us that power to really imagine things and really bring truth, as you said. So I love that you mentioned the Cooper Kids series. I recently found that series at a half price books and got that for my kids. And so I'm I'm excited to see what they think of those books and uh, help them on their journey to fantastic stories. You can send us an email, as Stephanie did, to podcast at lorehaven.com. We also have the feedback form at the website, lorehaven.com slash podcast. There you will find all of our archived episodes, and you can use the feedback form at the end of those pages. You can also follow us or send messages on all the socials. Search Facebook for Lorehaven, Twitter at Lorehaven, and then Instagram, Lorehaven there as well. Next on Fantastical Truth, what if you grew up learning scripture memory and biblical virtues from a Christian-made tabletop game system in the 1980s? Then you discovered that this game had been canceled by an irritated televangelist. That's a decent setup for a fan-friendly contemporary Christian-made novel, but it's actually a true story. And now suspense and fantasy novelist James R. Hannibal, who is the owner of the game known as Dragon Raid, will share this story of dice rolling, death, and rebirth. Meanwhile, whether you're backsliding or being rescued from backsliding, recognize that tropes and sentimentality and vision quests and any of that spiritual stuff won't actually bring you back to Jesus. Jesus will bring you back to Jesus, and he's going to use the truth of the scripture, but maybe also some great stories about backsliding characters as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>